Well, I'll, I'll get around to it. Um, but ethics in Star Trek. Ethics in Star Trek. Because people in Star Trek are super racist. But but the, 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 that's never addressed in like these kind of ethical critiques of Star Trek. Like Star Trek always looks like, look, they're a post-scarcity society. Everyone gets along. Uh, you know, there are well, all these big messages about how it's like we have to like, you know. Every, everybody get... gets along unless it's like, you know, a cultural Romulans or Klingons or like, yeah. So Maybe like the, that, the, that's the something I, of like, I well, Vulcans are just always cold and logical. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, um, you know, and the Ferengi are just greedy bastards. Which the Ferengi I, I are amazing. About, the Ferengi so are brilliant. Um, <laughs> Greed is good. Brilliant Greed is good. Um, but it's just also why. It's also why. And I will fight anybody who disagrees with me on this. DS9 is the best Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I agree. I because really because like, like you get so much more depth. You get to see like the dark underbelly of the Federation and realize that, oh, actually it is insidious. This neoliberal galactic institute. Well, maybe not quite neoliberal, but this liberal galactic institution. Yeah. Um, I mean, as much as portrayed I mean, as, you know. Um, uh, it is neoliberal because it does employ like slave labor of androids. Yeah. I, and, I I don't know quite how I feel about that. There's a lot of discuss, ethical discussion to be had there, but well, yeah, there, there definitely. Is kind but we're of all, this... not all the thing. Not all the Ferengi are greedy in DS9. There are a few who are like, oh, this is kind of bullshit. Yeah, but that's so. like it's considered to be like a cultural thing. That's how it's always explained right. away. It's like they're, they're always fighting against this idea of like, well, the Klingons aren't just bloodthirsty. It's just their culture that makes them that way. Um, I, I really like um, in. Uh, have you seen uh, the Orville? It's, um, I have. I think yeah. it's the best successor. Oh to my Star god! Trek. No, it's amazing. I, I yeah, think, like, no, yeah, it's uh, way better than all like the new official Star Trek things. Well, better. It, it's I different. I mean, I think it's. I think it's amazing comedy. Um, it is. Like, I, I mean, I like Seth MacFarlane, and I was really worried this was going to be like in the yeah. line of like Ted or um, just over oh, the what, top. What the, the stoner alien yeah. comedy they did. Um, was that them? That might have been them. Um. But it's like, no, it deals with these actually kind of complex issues. Um, I love the fact when they introduce, um, I can't remember his name, the Kalon they have on board. Yeah. Like, one of the first comments they make to him is like, isn't your race like one of the most racist like, races in the galaxy? <laughs> and the Kalon's just like, well, yeah, because we're superior. You are all inferior. And it's just this kind of like joke throwaway thing they do like in the first episode, but like a lot of stuff in it yeah. ends up being kind of like not quite a brick joke, but this like way of building more depth later on in the series where it's like, yeah, well, then they go to the Kalon homeworld and they're like, yeah, we basically sent him as an emissary to see if we want to join your organic races um, federation. That's not federation, but basically. And yeah. essentially say, like, no, we are just better than you, so we should have all the resources in the galaxy, so we're just going to exterminate you along with the rest of life in the galaxy. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah. that's a pretty common sci-fi trope, and it's something that even, like, futurists is. freak out about. Of like, well, what happens when AI realizes it's better than us and that we're kind of wasting its resources? Um, they need us to survive. Yeah, I mean, then you get the whole, like, you know... Um, <laughs> The Matrix thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, we would make incredibly efficient, useful, good batteries. No. That's it, what human bodies are made for. They're really good at that. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, because that's actually, like, um, random Matrix <laughs> trivia is that the Wachowskis, when they first, like, you know, yeah. were getting the ideas together for the Matrix, they wanted to have uh, that scene where Morpheus shows Neo the battery and says, like, 
to turn human beings into this and shows the battery and it's like whoa they're getting our electrical impulses from our brains and our hearts and using that to power their you know or heat or whatever they're using yeah and um it's like no in the original like version of it it was supposed to be him holding up a microprocessor and saying turning humans into this right it's like yeah they're using our brains as microprocessors to build the matrix like that's what it's for. It's just a, yeah. a much cooler idea, and I get that. Like, I didn't think people would understand and that. Far more consistent with computer science. Yeah, well, it should make sense. <laughs> yeah, then, where it's like, yeah, that's. I yeah. mean, you, know, you make a, a cloud of human brains. I'm sure folks like Elon right. Musk are super down with that. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, whatever. That guy is just like a like a computer. Like I don't know. He's just uh, a mental breakdown. Well, he's having a mental something. breakdown right now, so he's yeah. He's posting, "We should free America, liberate America," <laughs> and stuff like that on Facebook, and also like just posting Dude, you're stuff South like African. <laughs> and you made and you made all made your money all off of his money during apartheid. Yeah. yeah, he made all of his money off of Daddy's emerald mines in South Africa. <laughs> like, fuck you, you piece of shit. We're gonna get old Musky <laughs> angry at us, and uh, I'm 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 okay with that. Let's get a, let's get a Twitter flame war going with it. Ah, okay, and and then we can like, and he can accuse us of some things. We can sue him rightfully for slander and libel, and hey, then lose first say damages. Uh, well, <laughs> actually, no, I think he's lost most of his like slander lawsuits and libel lawsuits. Well, he didn't lose the one about calling that. Uh, that guy in Thailand who the the diver who saved uh, all those kids or helped save really? all those kids. How did he how do you not like uh, lose called that him one? a pedo? Yeah. And how did he how do you lose the, uh, not lose that one? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think I think the court said, well, this man didn't demonstrate any damages, but like you just accused somebody of something pretty fucking like yeah. serious and despicable. Like honestly, I don't think you should have to prove damages for that. Yeah, you shouldn't you don't have to. It should be. It should be per se uh, damages. Yeah. Well. Per se. It's yeah, another case. It's another case of the law doesn't apply to the rich, yeah. um, as we all know. But. I think that Star Trek also has kind of an interesting take on, uh, well, it doesn't really even have a take most of the time on environmentalism. Well, Um, I'd argue it does in specific contexts. I think there is some element of um, the the prime directive kind of uh, uh, protecting uh, organisms on planets. Sure. It's yeah. not about protecting yeah. the environments of planets unless it's going to kill off some, you know, uh, almost spacefaring uh, race yeah. living on the planet. But it's this idea, yeah. of, you know, I mean, like, the, the, fir- the first, you know, the prime directive is also the most flexible directive. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they live in, in theory, a post-scarcity society, so they don't have to yeah. worry about resources. And therefore, there's not much discussion about, like, well, how do we save the environment so that we actually have you know, the resources to keep living as uh, 
some you know intergalactic society. Well, it's all in the same galaxy, but yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> they have some traces outside. Of us. <laughs> no. Um. Well, I I think it is curious though because uh, I I I know that for myself uh, when I was still kind of a baby anarchist uh, and environmentalist, I I sort of had this idea that we could make a lot of the stuff that's in Star Trek uh, real, right? That through yeah. technology, we would be able to uh, essentially save ourselves yeah, um, yeah. We from, had this discussion, from environmental destruction. We had this discussion on our, I think, second episode talking about um, our paths to mm -hmm. the left. And both of us, it seems pretty heavily pulled from sci-fi as just, you know, Oh yeah. The broad frameworks while pretty young of what a like post scarcity society would look like and how, you know, uh how that yeah. would affect culture around us and um and, but and that doesn't yeah. just come from uh you know, sci fi that, that idea that um I mean uh, I read Ishmael pretty young, like maybe like eighteen, and Ishmael is a pretty like uh primitivist text where it's you know like uh, we once we had the agricultural evolution, everything went down there after that. Yeah, um, I would say that's a pretty consistent belief among a lot, a lot of green anarchists, a lot of uh, and and increasingly more more radical environmentalists. I think have that view. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, okay. So th this is the Long Road Pod, and um, I'm Trevor. I'm Sasha, and. I think yeah, today we're gonna get uh, pretty deep into um, the uh, idea that, say, humans are the virus. That's coming up a lot talking about the Rona yeah, stuff, is. where people yeah. say like, "Hey, look at these pictures of these beautiful like cityscapes that are just empty and pollution's down, and my God, the dolphins are returning to Venice, and uh, the uh... whales are thriving, and it's like, look how much." Humanity has been destroying the planet. We are and all the it virus. took was two months. Yeah, and that's like a big thing. <laughs> and like, like you know, look how, and it's a worthwhile critique of the systems we live in, and yeah. namely uh, this capitalist, very heavily industrialized system that does create mass amounts of pollution. And when elements are removed from that, namely like people driving around in cars and right. you know, production occurring. There is definitely an environmental impact that you can see, I mean, a, a positive yeah. impact from. Yeah, I mean, so so all those things have a very direct impact on the environment around them. In addition to the more long term, uh, the more long term atmospheric impacts that they have, um, and you know, it's pretty easy for people to sometimes get that confused. Though the whales are not doing that much better. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's you know, we're, we're, so. we have not slowed the uh, oncoming climate catastrophe to a no. level which is uh, sustainable, I guess. Oh, no. Like, we're going to be no, going back. One of the things this really has shown that's like, yeah, these individual decisions to not drive as often really don't matter uh, in don't. the grand scheme of things. Um yeah. The overall systems and we I, have I think... of energy production, uh, waste still exist, and the planet still is um, 
really uh, on the same path still to climate catastrophe. Yeah. Um, and it's it's unclear how like what's going to happen in the next two years at this point, let alone you know, or, or the next two months. Uh, it's really hard to tell. But I think what we can like we can pretty easily say that it's very likely that uh, global climate change will continue on the path it has done. Yeah, and I think that this there there have been a few ways that um, not just individuals, not just kind of like random folk online, but like actual governments have been planning out the disaster response, the coronavirus thing. I'm thinking UK and yeah. Sweden specifically. Okay. That they've both discussed this idea of, well, you let the virus run its course for a short while, and then we have herd immunity. Right. And that, that, that is a like profound misunderstanding of what herd immunity is. Yeah. I, I mean, think herd it was Sweden and the Netherlands. Yeah. No, I mean, the UK but, talked yeah. about this at first. They, they, oh, okay. they, they scrapped okay. the idea, uh, I think, right when Boris Johnson got sick. Well, um, you know, maybe that was a really good thing for the people of Britain. Maybe. But I think that the, the misunderstanding of what herd immunity is comes actually, I think, from the prevalence of the anti-vax movement right now and the fact that we've had this phrase herd immunity kind of enter the national lexicon pretty recently. Yeah. We have all of a sudden folks being like, well, no, you have to have people be immunized because we have to have herd immunity. Therefore, someone can't be immunized. They're still protected. Because if everyone around them is, you know, inoculated against measles, if they can't be inoculated, they're still not going to get measles because it's not going through the population. Right. The difference between that and what's being practiced right now in, I think I'm going to say specifically Sweden, is that uh, their approach is, well, just let people keep living their lives mostly normally. And then, yes, some people get sick with this, you know, uh, uh, novel coronavirus, and maybe some of them die. But in the end, the people who are left are going to be either immune to this virus or it'll the virus will be so, uh, I guess, minimalized at that point that we'll be able to yeah. control it. Well, um, and I, I think it also has to do with, like, the capacity of your healthcare system. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, so... it, it, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's basically saying, well, it's not flattened the curve right now. The curve will get flatter over time. Um, yeah. But when you strip away the idea of uh, this this misconception of herd immunity, what they're really talking about is, well, let's just let the weak die. Yeah. It's, and they're saying, let the weak die, and then for the strong will survive. Yeah. The people who are naturally immune to it or can handle it better, they'll survive. But we just let the weak people die out right. first, and that's fine. And they do, but they also ignore the environmental factors that make people, you know, quote weak, right? So, uh, we've seen but, in America uh, something even, even similar just, to that. Well, but even just beyond the environmental factors, of what make people like quote unquote weak? But it's um, there is this sense, I think, of just. There are some people who are going to be more susceptible, who will get sick and die, and that sucks. And that's miserable, but hey, that's life. And it, it's taking like this kind of Darwinist idea, and I mean, let's call it what it is. It's eugenics. It, it's saying that, well, we'll let the weak people die off, and then the strong people reproduce, and therefore everyone will be stronger overall. And that's like textbook eugenics. Yeah, um, but I think... You know, textbook eugenics was also incredibly racist. And so that's what I mean with the 
with the environmental factors where yes. uh, poorer people in more closed conditions who don't have access to healthcare, who don't have access to like good food and you know secure water uh, and, and shelter um, are far more likely to uh, get the virus and far more likely to suffer uh, severe consequences from it. I mean, I think, think of like, it. you know, uh, uh, the U.S. response to uh, Hurricane Maria when it hit Puerto Rico, where there was pure apathy from our government to like yeah. how to deal with uh, the, 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 the damage there. And the result of that and, is a massive number of people died. Massive number of people yeah. are still going to be dying from that initial disaster years later. Yeah, and, and not even just apathy but grift just yeah the theft that was that was perpetrated against uh people in puerto rico and the uh i mean and a lot of that did come from um some racial biases there was this sense of well they're not really americans they're puerto ricans and it's like well that's like saying they're not americans they're new yorkers like it, 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 it's you a know, lot of race, but yeah. it's more racist. It's more racist. There's this sense yeah. of they are some other, we don't have to care about them, which um, I think definitely has racist uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. ideology and supporting it. I, I think, though, where we're, where we're starting to see that uh, interface with environmentalism is with the concept of eco-fascism. Yeah. And um, and ecofascism, I think it's kind of hard to pin down because it, yeah, like the ideas that led to um, some some branches of original fascism, um, particularly Nazism, have some roots in uh, Malthusian ideology that basically oh, yeah. don't have resources for everybody. So I mean, I, I I think it's really curious. I think Malthus is kind of the start of this thinking about food and population on a sort of pseudoscientific level, right? Well, um, and maybe. I want to put a pin in that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll loop it back around, but uh, go on. Yeah, so, I mean, the the, the quick summary of Malthus is that he was a, a an English guy. I think he was English. Um, yeah, British, anyway. Um, who... Uh, wrote a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population uh, or in, uh, and published it in 1798. There were other editions after that that got like more conservative and, uh, and awful, but the original work was kind of just his uh, observations. Ultimately, a lot of it's just observations on the nature of how population increases and how as food production increases, it tends to lead to just an increase in population instead of an increase in the quality of life uh, for everybody. Yeah, and part um, of that is looking at actually like, there were like class divides. He did kind of note in that that were oh, like yeah. yeah, like the rich are getting all this uh, more food, better food, and the poor populations are still suffering as they had been historically. Yeah, and they just have more kids for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, was what he said, and so like there, there's some like. There's definitely some truth, I think, in his observations. Um, but and but... There, are, there are some errors in it that just like <laughs> I mean, the he was looking at like logarithmic population growth and um, uh, arithmetic or uh, geometric food growth, 
and that's not necessarily true because we have had advances in like fertilizer development right. and uh, I mean GMOs stuff like that that have actually increased food production. So it's not the situation is nowhere near what he yeah. kind of prophesied it would be. Yeah, he thought that there was essentially a a limit to the amount of food you could grow on land that technologically you couldn't increase beyond that point. And that was also a fundamental premise of uh, later on Nazism in Germany. Um, Which I think also is in some way sort of taken from I mean, a lot of things like uh, in Nazism, the way they actually pursued their eugenics programs were based on pre-existing models, uh, British colonialism, American oh, yeah. colonialism, and specifically like the U.S. Trail of Tears and how the U.S. population, um, the U.S. European population had prioritized themselves over the uh, native groups who were living in this country and basically saw like, well, we want all this land. We want all these resources. You're on the land right now, so we're just going to push you somewhere else. And this is now our land. And there's, there's some idea of, you know, the um, yeah uh, Western exceptionalism of like, and uh, yeah. that ideology, mm -hmm. I think, has been part of colonial expansion uh, right. throughout the history of colonial expansion before it had and any especially, sort of um, uh, like fascist trimmings. Yeah, you can see. So, so you have that sort of Malthusian land and food understanding that was a big part of you know nazi ideology um later on but there was another side going on a more like philosophical uh like connection to the land idealism romanticism side that you could see in europe and america um that it went by different names but you like in in america i, I think a really good example of this uh, of this was actually thomas jefferson who uh, really supported the you know a rural America where every you know every man had his homestead, right? There is sort well, yeah, of this, this transcendental idea of that. Um, yeah, which came later. It's a similar, it's similar kind of underpinnings of like somehow people are tied to nature and the land. Yeah, and in Germany that also had its own. Uh, development in the late 19th century and into like the, the early 20th century, the and, teens and 20s. And Europe did as well. Like um, yeah. pre-Russian revolution, the, there was like Tsarist intellectualists who had the same idea of, mm -hmm. there's something, um, I, I, I want to say spiritual with the connection of, I'm going to borrow German terms here, from the folk and the land. <laughs> Right. There is something there's some kind of deep connection where it's not just like, well, we need resources, but this is this land is us, we are the land. Kind there's of there's a yeah. deeper so, mentality there. Yeah, that movement in Germany was called the um folkish movement, which uh it comes from the, the uh root word of folk, uh which means there's no like perfect translation in English. Um I would say that it's kind of a combination of the word uh nation and uh people you know a nation meaning sort of like this ethnic group of people yeah um and it didn't necessarily have a connection to land as an idea until you know that that folkish movement came up and sort of right you know came up with the idea of what they call blood and soil which yeah which is directly who, malthusian yeah. idea um 
and uh, you know, in German, it's Blut und Boden. Um, and then that has sort of gone on through fascist movements since then. Um, like today, you can see it in like Ukraine. Uh, in Ukraine, you'll see the bad black and red flag um, that stands for blood and soil that a lot of uh, fascist militias in Ukraine use. Yeah. Um, to be differentiated from the good red and black flag, that's the anarcho-socialist flag. Yeah. Um, so... You know, this is uh, this is an idea that is still very much alive uh, in the far right, um, and so all of this came together. This this like uh, you know the Folkish movement in Germany also had a big made a big push to like get Germans to go outside. You know, go for you know go for a hike. It'll make you a better person, like, and it'll make the German nation stronger. And that's why I wanted to tie um, into like kind of American transcendentalism because like yeah. that. And like later on, kind of idealism was this sense that like uh, good American men belong out in the woods. They belong in this kind of rugged outdoor space. It makes you good. It makes you strong. It builds your connection to the land. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could even talk about maybe like repopulization, repopularization, the 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 kind of yeah. reframing of um, Woody Guthrie's "This land is your land" and how it's interpreted, because <laughs> originally yeah. it's absolutely a workers' rights, um, uh, like anthem or not workers' rights. It's a it's an internationalist anthem, and um, I think that the way it has been kind of re co-opted, yeah, co-opted, yeah, the way it's been co-opted is. Uh, very much kind of American exceptionalism. Like, this oh, land yeah. is your land because you are an American. That is why this land is your land. And yeah. they get rid of some verses to make that fit. So it's, but... it's some nationalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is what this, like, what this stuff turned into, right? Is when you when you have a sort of philosophy that that's pretty incoherent, but starts to become a little more coherent, uh, it turned into nationalism. So you had the combination of this, like, you know, emphasis on rural values uh, and on, you know, appreciation of the land, being one with the land. And then you combine that with sort of these new, like developed Malthusian ideas. What you get are the Nazis and their concept of Lebensraum, which means uh, living room. But I don't think that the English really is a great, it doesn't give you a good sense of like, uh, with the, with the deeper meaning of it. Uh, what it means, because, because the German word for room is more expansive. Uh, like, it's also the word for space, yeah. like outer space uh, in German. And so uh, it's a very, like, encompassing uh, word. So the idea, you know, it's expansive. And so that that's what I... Um, I'm going to differentiate this later on with, with the eco-fascist conception of uh of living space that that's happening today which i think is more contractive um but the germans you know but the nazis had an expansive version of it which was that they would expand german lands particularly eastward into poland and russia um kill all the people there uh settle germans or or dutch people um because they were going to make the netherlands german um and uh you know, then they would have enough land to produce enough food to allow the German nation to grow and become stronger. Yeah. And that is, you know, I think 
pretty well mirrored by a lot of the Western expansion in the uh, Americas when uh, European forces came over and kept pushing further and further west until you know they, they yeah. hit the Pacific and then we'll continue on into the Pacific um, yeah and uh, there I think was more of a crunch in Europe at the time because these were uh, expansions into other industrialized lands and where in the US the expansion was from sort of this industrial uh, colonial culture out into a non-industrialized space and that has been something which has been addressed like the industrialization um a lot in sort of the the new ecology movements of uh what is destroying our planet is it um industry is it uh kind of this exploitive mindset and uh, one of the ideas that's kind of uh come out of this is the idea that well, actually, it's humans are the problem. Yeah. That there is, and there's like the um, the zero population growth uh, people who basically saw that like, yeah, we need to actually like completely restrict human population growth because humans are the bad thing. There's some kind of inherent original sin that uh, humans are just bad and destroy things around them. Um, and again, going back to Ishmael, it's one of the points I like is that one of the distinctions they draw between kind of rugged primitivism and the actual like ideology of the book is that no humans aren't the problem human groups have done very well in you know uh, I mean, alternative systems yeah the it's, species it's, is two hundred and fifty thousand years old and we managed to not destroy everything around us for almost all of that time yeah and the idea of uh the, the the simplification down to this concept of just humans are bad leads to some really uh i i think frightening crossovers from this kind of ecological movement we saw like in the US especially in like the 70s into some very right wing ideology and some very left wing ideology that um yeah, and some ideology that ways. just isn't really all that connected to either left or well, right. And that's, that's that's the push from like the green movement. Like one of the phrases green movements yeah. around the world have used is not left, not right, but forward. And Ugh. I mean, like Andrew Yang co-opted the same thing. He said basically the same thing. It's like, well, it's not a left wing movement. It's not a right wing movement. It's a forward looking movement. Well, which, that's because he's a right winger. Like, well, yeah, because that ideology yeah. of well, it's not right, it's not left, it's just forward. It's that that inherently does become like a a neo-fascist ideology yeah it turns into that yeah uh, i mean i should say maybe it doesn't always have to but that's what's happened historically right. historically that's how, how it happens yeah so i think um and, and i don't think we're we won't go into like the whole long history of it but i think we saw the early development uh of what we're talking about today with ecofascism is that it has some of its roots in uh, ideas and movements that were not fascist. Um, yeah. And it particularly comes from a set of ideology called deep ecology, which uh, was that idea that humans are, are the problem um, and particularly human overpopulation and human industrialization were the problem. So it's yeah. where a lot of like modern uh, primitivism comes from, 
uh, it's where, uh, and it's where a lot of like anti-civ, uh, as an anti-civilization ideas come from. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and these days there's also kind of a new development on it that I really like, uh, which is post-civ, um, that is kind of a synthesis of things, but, uh, what that led to per- was a number of things, uh, that kind of started in the the seventies, really grew up in the eighties, and that's when uh, you started getting some offshoots. And one of those offshoots was Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, um, and uh, Kaczynski is, um, I think, one of those people who's very hard to nail down left or right. Uh, I think yeah. he very much was <laughs> one of those not left, not right, but forward kind of minded people. <laughs> and. I mean, of uh, course, the Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, there is a shitload yeah. of conspiracy surrounding him, uh, who he was involved with. There is some, like, conspiracy he was involved with, some of these, like, deep green movements, um, particularly the Earth First movement. None of that's corroborated. No. Um, there's yeah. a bunch of things that say that maybe he was actually some CIA agent who was part of the MK Ultra experiments, and that's actually surprisingly slightly more corroborated. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the basics... And people who don't know Kaczynski, like he was a uh, mathematician uh, in the 90s, went a very good a one too. Uh, apparently, a brilliant mathematician. Um, went on like a, a hermitage out into the woods, wrote a manifesto explaining how we need to get rid of um, uh, industry because it's destroying the planet, and uh, we need to basically reevaluate how humans are uh, creating this misery for ourselves and the uh, ecology around us. And then he mailed a bunch of bombs to professors so that he could um, get enough press coverage to get his manifesto published. Well, and he I don't think the... that was his specific goal. I mean, he, he oh, was Oh, no, reacting. that's his specific like, goal. That That is in oh, the manifesto. From the start. The manifesto specifically says that the reason he is mailing bombs to people oh, is okay. to get his thing published. Well, I guess that worked. Yeah. And... Um, and actually, no, it did work because he, um, I believe it was New York Times, actually ended up publishing uh, his manifesto because he promised that he would stop mailing bombs if his manifesto was published. And uh, he was actually caught because his brother uh, recognized the handwriting after it was widely circulated. And I was like, it was oh, his so, style of writing. Right, not yeah. handwriting, his writing style. Yeah. Um, and was just like, I, this is my brother. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's how he got caught. Uh, actually, he uh, appeared, he's still alive. He's he's in prison. Uh, you can mm-hmm. write him. He'll write you back. He's if you prolific, if you, apparently. <laughs> if you want, if you want something delivered to your house that is from Ted Kaczynski, you can do that. Isn't that nifty? That is. <laughs> apparently, a lot of people do it. Uh, yeah. Um, um, it's also like. Uh, it was in the same. Pre- I think it's like that Supermax prison in Colorado. Uh, that I think Timothy McVeigh was there before he. Before oh no! There, the, the, yeah, it was. It was one of those you know, before stuff. the state executed him. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I can't remember what the name of it is, but there's a whole bunch of random, like high-profile. Um, yeah, like drug lords sent there. Yeah, like, drug lords, terrorists. I mean, Ted Kaczynski was a terrorist too. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, yeah. like he specifically is a terrorist. Like that's what. Yeah, he, he did. Is. He inspired yeah. terror to get his political ideas across. Like, which. Yeah, Which, I mean, we can talk weird. about we can talk about that's all the other like, random <laughs> folks who've done similar stuff in the name of eco-fascism. 
Um, yes. The, the Christchurch shooter, the exact same thing. Well, his is, well, okay, I'm going to step back for one second. I wanted to mention one thing about uh, Kaczynski, which is that yeah. the reason he's kind of hard to nail down is because he uh, decries capitalism. Um, he believes that capitalism and industrialization is what is destroying the planet. Okay. Um, he also believes that this is being uh, spread by liberals, socialists, um, and kind of left-wing minds, and believes that they should be removed first so that the real problem can be dealt with. Oh. And he believes that the real problem is uh, Jewish is... banking cartels. And it goes very... Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, he is very <laughs> um, anti-Semitic. Well, fairly anti-Semitic. He sees it as yeah. kind of a... It's, it's the usual kind of anti-Zionist conspiracy theories. They pop up in his work. Yeah, well, which again, there's a difference between being anti-Zionist and being an anti-Semite. He doesn't draw that line. Um, no, he doesn't. <laughs> he but doesn't. that ideology then um, comes in as well when you look at some yeah. other eco-fascist uh, terrorist folks. Who, um, I mean, the, so the two big I, ones are like I think probably the Christchurch shooter and um, uh, oh god, the Oslo shooter. Uh, yeah, but before but before we like get to that modern stuff, I just want to quickly say that like. Ted Kaczynski started his stuff in the 80s, went through into the 90s, got caught, uh, is in prison, and that in that time also through the 80s and 90s and then into the early thousands, you saw a number of different uh, groups, uh, particularly activist groups, pop up that were based in some ways uh, in deep ecology. And you got kind of a variety of different yeah. views and and okay, tactics so let's, that let's, came let's, out let's of that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about like Earth um, First and those sort of. So uh, yeah. Groups. So just a sort of quick rundown is like you know it was like Earth Earth, uh, Earth First, the An Animal Liberation Front, the Earth Liberation Front, Deep Green Resistance, uh, and a number of other groups that uh, sort of were based in this ideology and had different expressions of it. And I mean, you could histories. argue Move as well. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, they're more primitivist, but still. Um, yeah. Um, but that sort of takes us up into the mid thousands. Well, yeah, I think it's actually a thing important to talk about is a lot of these early movements were um, not racially motivated explicitly. Um, there was sort of a push, uh, particularly like after World War II, at, when there was kind of this proliferation of vaccines. There was um, not really like an anti-vax movement, but this concern that, well, yes, but if we start vaccinating everybody, then all these poor people in these, you know, um, mostly Southern Hemisphere countries are going to be living a lot longer because we'll be able to prevent these diseases that are uh, incredibly detrimental. And by preventing hmm. these diseases, we're going to have population explosions. Yeah. And population explosions comes uh, food insecurity, and we're going to have a global crisis well, on our hands also dispossessing people of their land and their farms and ability to pr produce food that could also be a problem oh it could i mean I, I i i think that's definitely the actual problem but yeah there was it's the actual problem <laughs> yeah yeah but um so, so a lot of these like early movements were again not explicitly racist but i, I would say absolutely racially blind um, at the very least, that or we're saying like racist, yes. more implicitly racist. There were folks who very much, I mean, like um, when the AIDS crisis was really uh, uh, blowing up in Africa, there were a lot of folks who were saying, "Well, isn't this kind of a good thing? I mean, it's gonna create natural population control." Uh, and that disgusting. wasn't, yeah, but it's it's 
these ideas in a lot of cases are um, intellectuals, Western intellectuals, white Western intellectuals mm-hmm. who are looking at um, what's kind of you know, colloquially called the third world and saying, well, if a lot of them die off, it's not really our problem. Um, even during the point during the Cold War, there are some voices saying, well, if there's a third world country that doesn't want to support us, like the the, the, the first world, you know, Western nations and uh, NATO, yeah. that we should not give them any aid. And the yeah. artifacts I mean, of that, that still exist. I mean, the yeah. fact that still, like, during this global pandemic, we've been denying aid to Iran. We've been blocking aid to Iran. We've been keeping the sanctions on Iran. It's it's We do have these... There absolutely are some explicit, uh, either, I guess, xenophobic or actual racist philosophies that come out of this population control mindset. Yeah. And, it, and like that, those views also continue today in a not clearly uh, environmentalist way. And this is sort of, and so historically, what has happened with fascist movements is that uh, liberal and conservative um, establishments eventually acquiesce to fascist taking power. And I want people to understand that, you know, the, the general premise here is that we think ecofascism is going to be the next iteration of fascism, and we're already seeing sort of this idea becoming more acceptable to the establishment. Um, I think a great example of this is Bill Gates. Um, who's yeah, I want to talk about that. The big issue is that, is that people are having babies in Africa. He's really concerned about this. Like, which incredibly has, concerned which about this. has actually <laughs> really influenced his views on uh, how vaccines are treated. Because for a while, he was actually... Uh, Maybe not directly against, but he he had some fear that he expressed about uh, if we have all these vaccinations, we're going to have uh, you know uh, longer lifespans and uh, a population boom, and that's going to you know create more food insecurity, resource insecurity, and yeah. therefore maybe we shouldn't vaccinate people. But what actually made him change his mind on that? The reason now he you know, the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a prolific vaccination proponent is uh there's pretty good research that shows that when people live longer lives and when they actually have a higher chance of uh, survival through childhood that uh population explosions don't occur as often Um, yeah basically Um, people when they have kids that are more likely to survive they have less kids yeah and so basically seeing wait if i you know, help promote vaccines, then there's going to be less population. He supports that. And not because vaccines kill people or not get anything like that, but because vaccines actually do save lives and therefore people have less kids. Yeah. Um, but also... We'll try to have less kids. I'll, I'll phrase also, it that way. It really, yeah, it really comes down to, though, like... It, it's pretty racist. Like, it's pretty racist that his main concern is the population boom in Africa, of all places. Absolutely. Um, like, it's, come on. Like, well, I, it's I, I, I barely this, even know what to say. It's still a very colonial mindset of, like, well, I'm yeah. the wealthy Westerner, and I know what's best for your country, and so I'm right. going to start putting these societal programs in place to basically help you come out of the Dark Ages, which I think is a lot of how he sees it. 
I think a yeah. lot of wealthy folks see it. And, yeah. and not just like, you know, these these billionaire folks who are dumping tons of money into personal pet projects around the world. I think a lot of folks who are just better off see it as kind of their obligation to help civilize people. And that's that's yeah. That's which is part of which is I part mean, of the problem ultimately. Um but also uh I I think the the other aspect here and I and I think this is the tone that it will start to take in the future is that uh from like philanthropists anyway that you know so called uh is that I can imagine them making the argument soon that if you take care of people in their own countries, you send just enough money to make it almost bearable, they won't come here and take up the resources here. Well, and there definitely um, is that anti-immigration rhetoric tied into the, I th- yeah. I'd say, the vast majority of modern eco-fascist uh, philosophy. Exactly. And um, actually, there's, there's an article from uh, 2000 by uh, this guy, Derek Wall, that uh, has some interesting views on eco-fascism as a timepiece of him, you know, looking into this online before like the rise of the alt-right, before kind of the, yeah. uh, I guess, the demasking of the American uh, fascist movements, which is the, the, the public unmasking, the the self-unmasking, the, the, the facade falling. Yeah. Um, and he talks their ab- power level. Yeah, and he talks yeah. about um, <laughs> the, these uh, folks online who uh, actually do have this, like, um strong uh indoctrination in these um Nazi ideologies of like Lebensraum and um using these uh uh like the same ideology, blood and soil, um yeah. you know, we need a space for our people and our our folk. And the fact that this has been ongoing for some time it it allows you to see kind of the cross-pollination that these ideologies have had both like the deep green movements and these eco-fascist movements which the like uh the green scare stuff that happened in 2000s with a lot of folks being arrested as terrorists um after 9-11 for engaging in non-terroristic activities for a large part yeah, well, nobody um, was killed. No one was killed. Um, their their bombs were set off. Uh, mostly it was protests. Uh, mostly it was organization. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, tree sitters, uh, people blocking rail lines, stuff like that. Wow, well, and spiking trees. And spiking trees. Yeah. Which was huge. That was huge. Yeah. But um, that was going on at the same time that there was this slight decline in the American militia movement. That was a very right-wing movement that led to stuff like um, the uh, Oklahoma City bombings and uh, had this more, I guess, drive-up-the-body-count mentality that you see kind of through the Unabomber stuff. But when I think you start really seeing those ideas really cross-pollinating is when you get to the uh, modern alt-right spree shooter folks. Um, yeah. Because you end up yeah. at that point having people who have the same, you know, without hyperbole, terroristic ideology of, I'm going to kill as many people as possible so that my manifesto gets published. And you see that with 
Um, I mean, the, the Christchurch shooter specifically called himself an eco-fascist. Yeah. Um, uh, the Oslo shooter in 2011, um, he actually uh, mentioned Madison Grant in his manifesto, who is uh, like a uh, he, he was one of the founders of the uh, Sierra Club, um, and hmm. who was like a, a strong believer in scientific racism, and was is kind of one of the the minds behind what was ecologically focused sort of proto-fascist stuff in the U.S. And so the, the, there are these ideas that are all kind of tied together in these modern movements that then, along with being ecologically focused, are extremely nationalistic and extremely racist. Um, yeah. And well, deeply I, tied and, with the immigration um, And let's concerns. not, like say like i don't think they're ecologically focused i i think it's more that like they have this idea of how ecology works that is not actually consistent with science um and that they you know they are still fascists and it will still maintain a level of industrialization and empower you know the richest people to continue the destruction of the planet so like it's not it, it, it's well, I mean, it's look, still fascism, but with like ecological window dressings. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking right now of you know the the protests that are ongoing that are like the reopen business protests um, that are you know the, this kind of uh, um, uh, what's the bloody term. Um, AstroTurf, AstroTurf protests that yeah, have been uh, around the country, telling with you know armed folks uh, going to capitals and demanding that the uh, cities reopen so they can get uh, grass seed. Mm -hmm. Or I mean, actually, in the Midwest, there are yeah. a lot of folks saying like, "Let us go hunt. Let us go out into the outdoors. Let us go be active outside again. It's almost summer. Come on, my God!" And uh, which like national forest lands are not closed, you. But idiots. but they they the yeah. thing is they, they don't care again it's it's the trappings of it it it's this it is yeah um they this, want to this... be angry instead of you know doing the research yeah and of course you can say there are you know uh, propagandistic efforts to make them uh, oh you know, yeah totally. feel they need to get out there and you know go protest and yeah, be totally you know not the least of which the president you know using the word liberate as you know certain states yeah. Which, uh, if that doesn't have like Civil War vibes, uh, what will? <laughs> wake up, sheep! <laughs> no, but uh, there have definitely been a lot of Civil War vibes from this whole uh, pandemic response. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Peaceful, unified. You know, we need unity. That's unity's the solution. Yeah. Okay, I, I can't keep that up anymore, but yeah. But you were talking about the the AstroTurf, uh, the AstroTurf uh, protests against uh, stay-at-home orders. Yeah, and I think there is some direct tie from that into uh, anti-vaxxer stuff, which has its own concerns. Um. But I, I think that 
it'd be very easy for this same style of protests to occur for more specifically eco-fascist goals. Um, I could see this sort of thing being uh, tied to anti-immigration stuff. I could see it being tied yeah. to, uh, I guess, maintenance of like a white ethno-state sort of thing. This is, you know, spitballing yeah. a bit. I, I, well, don't, I, mean, I haven't seen any of this directly, but it doesn't seem I mean, what we see are all the precursors, reach. right? Yeah. You see all the precursors where you have a movement of people that are extremely anti-immigrant, right? You also have a movement of people, so that you have all the people who believe that the, the virus is a hoax, um, yep. which I don't think that's actually as strong as lots of liberals like to think it is because a lot of the people who are out protesting the stay-at-home orders actually a lot of them actually admit that the virus is real they just say that they don't care that uh you know we should still that we should still reopen well we still have like actual like Um, you know the the governor of texas saying like yeah like some folks may die but yeah hey send them back to work anyway so it's it's a movement away from denying those realities because I think they've discovered that they don't have to deny the reality in order to get their, uh, in order to get their most strong supporters to still do what they want. So I think that's what's going to change is we're going to see less denial of those scientific things, especially as the on the ground evidence becomes, you know, it gets to the point where like you can't deny it anymore. Like forest fires, you know, the, like the increase yeah. in forest fires makes it harder for people to deny that it's global warming. Um, and so the response to that is, I think, going to be, uh, you know, the next step is going to look a lot more like uh, eco fascism. Uh, well, because, because again, well, what I want to... hatred of immigrants, they're starting to actually accept the basic fact that the thing is real, and then their neck, you know, and their their new response is going to be, it doesn't matter, and we should discriminate against certain people so that you know the rest of us can survive this bad thing that exists. But that's like been a key component of uh, the eco fascist stuff is that it has these deep ties to anti multi multiculturalism, right? Where it is this. Um, it's not just that, like, yeah, we, um, you know, have to care for the environment and therefore let's indiscriminately let people die. It's we have to let the right people die because we are or make them better die. in some way. Well, and I, I think yeah. I think there's like definitely this push to like I, I will I will bet anything on this once the population as a whole begins to accept uh, the reality of climate change, we're gonna see a push to close our borders against refugees. I mean, it's already starting. It's uh, already been reasons, going on but, for a while, but I yeah. think that specifically when we have climate refugees, they're going to be turned yeah. away on the grounds that they are not American and we have to care for Americans first. And you see yeah. all the time, like with it actually is anti-immigrant rhetoric that usually comes up. Why are we caring for these uh, immigration folks coming across the yeah. border when we have our own people to care about? And do we care for those people? No, we don't. We still have yeah. tons of so like, again, folks in the streets and we still have, you know, Massive, I think it uh, comes back to that to that window dressing thing is that this is stuff that fascists already do. They all like already hate immigrants, already want to shut the border. They've managed to do it uh, as part of their you know reasons for this pandemic response. Uh, I think right now we're seeing uh, you know the rehearsal. 
uh, for what that what ecofascism is going to look like, um, because the actual behaviors of hating immigrants and shutting the borders and uh, rewarding your political allies and punishing your political foes, uh, such as the case with like fucking with different states and hospitals, medical supplies. Yeah. Um, it's just going to start taking on the talk of, of, you know, ecology when those realities become undeniable. See, I, I, I do wonder about that because if I had to pinpoint probably like the biggest actual ecological protests we've seen in the last few years, Standing Rock is the top of it. It is, and that was a massive protest of native yep. folks saying we want to be able to use the resources on our land without being killed by outside forces who are going to pollute our land, desecrate our holy sites, and kill our people. Kill our people. And yeah. those protests were met with massive militarized police response from across the country. Yeah, and when we say response, uh, we we mean violence, like some pretty severe violence. Chaining off the area with barbed um, wire, setting dogs on people, blasting people with water cannons and sub-zero temperatures, blowing a woman's arm nearly off with flashbang, uh, firing uh, rubber rounds at crowds of people, yeah. and producing some really severe yeah. injuries. And uh, then provocateur agents. Intense, provocateur agents um my, flying helicopters around a, in the middle of the night all night there was so a woman who was sleep. arrested because she was found with a gun on her person um which was actually that, a gun taken from a federal agent who had been sleeping with her in order to infiltrate the movement um and who had left his gun in her tent <laughs> um yeah no it was yeah. a military style response yeah. and it was akin to what time, you see in uh, uh, with israel settlement israeli settlements into uh gaza like that same level of just they're gonna keep moving the bulldozers so get out of yeah. the way and since then uh there actually has been a massive oil spill from that pipeline um no surprise no surprise um, and yeah and you can describe that protest as being a uh like a native nationalist like protest saying basically don't don't invade our land for these corporate interests. Um, you can also see it as an ecological protest, and I think it's both. It is. And the state's response to that very clearly was, who gives a fuck about the ecology? And I and you can point to the fact that like yeah. one of the last things Obama did before leaving was cancel the Keystone Pipeline permit. Um, yeah, but, but because we live in a, a democracy, waited for so maybe, long. Well, like, yes, but, most of Standing Rock happened yeah. while he was still president. Yeah, no, it was kind of a last ditch. Like, hey, look, I'm a good guy. I, I, that's how it appeared to me. Yeah, and the immediate, you know, well, that was one of the first things uh, Trump, when he was in the White House, like reversed was like, actually, no, that the permit's still valid, it's still going forward. Yeah. Um. It, yeah. And, and that I think feels in a big way. Um, eh, antithetical to this idea of eco-fascism, because you say like, well, hey, yeah. look, you know, we have this very fascistic, um, fascistic, fascistic, mm, fascistic, fascistic, um, uh, fishstick. This very fishstick government, <laughs> and um, but look, they they clearly don't give a fuck about the the ecology that they're you know 
destroying in this area. But the thing yeah. is, the reason the pipeline went through the Standing Rock Reservation is because it was routed around uh, a major city with a mostly white population for fears that yep. it would pollute the drinking water. And so yep. the actual preservation of resources was considered in where they chose to put the pipeline. It was just considered, yeah. well, maybe some people should have to deal with this. Not yeah. us. Not 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 these, you know. So it's South Dakota North Dakotans? No, North Dakotans. South Dakotans. North Dakotans. North Dakotans. North. Yeah. I I think though it comes down to um to the print like it's not really principle, but it, it's syncretism, right? Uh, so anybody who hasn't should read Umberto Eco's uh, essay on or fascism, um, which uh, talks about the 14 points of what fascism is. And one of those points is syncretism, uh, which means uh, the holding of relatively incompatible ideas at the same time. Mm. Um, in psychology, we call it cognitive dissonance, but in ideology, I think syncretism is a very good way of describing it. So you had like the Nazis who were both um, very, like tons of them were Catholics, but also had this like big support of like, you know, interest in the occult um, and like a, in their own special version of paganism called Ermanism. Yeah. But uh, so like Catholicism and paganism, not compatible historically, big <laughs> yeah um you'll see you'll see syncretism and other things too it's not just fascism but uh so i think what you'll see with like ecofascism one of those syncretist things is that they can be both corporatist um and you know and support putting pipelines through in you know on indigenous people's land and through their communities uh and you know continue you know the extraction of oil yeah. while at the same time like <laughs> while at the same time supposedly believing in in you know stopping destruction to the well, environment and like and, and Murray Bookchin talked about this like in the sense of um of Nazism and saying that you know like when it was coming into power it did sort of cast itself as this uh, kind of militantly anti-capitalist group um but anti-capitalism was this very like racist imperialist and like nationalist ideology which which did really extol this like uh, idea of like wilderness worship or like nature worship almost, where it was this very pastoral ideology of it, it's it's blood and soil was not seen as this like the, the, in the, in the propaganda sense it was not portrayed as a we are going to be killing lots and lots and lots of people it was just this well look we need this land you see a lot of these uh, propaganda posters at the time from. Uh, from Germany, from Russia, and actually U.S. as well, where they have, you know, these kind of like stoic farm workers standing up in this very Art Deco style with a bushel of wheat over their shoulder and a sickle at their hip. Like, mm -hmm. it, it is this, they, they, there are propagandistic ways to get through the cognitive dissonance. And oh, yeah. I think we haven't seen that yet. We yeah. haven't really seen this whole, like, no, the real push is for, I mean, maybe some of like the, the rhetoric that comes out about protecting American farmers, but I think there is this, you know, widespread acceptance that majority of the farming in this country relies heavily on migrant labor. And I think that well, that connection has not quite 
gotten through the cognitive dissonance yet. Well, no, um, especially not since uh, the harvests are going to be a real problem this year. Yeah. Since immigrants won't be allowed in. Uh, and also because of the dramatic drop in demand from institutional buyers of agricultural products. But yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, what's the, what's the takeaway from all of this discussion? Um, please, please, please stop saying that humans are the virus. <laughs> yeah. We, even like I see it from literally every leftist like person I follow on like Facebook and like Twitter and shit. Like, Please stop saying humans are the virus. We are not the virus. No. Capitalists the, are the virus. Get it straight. No, no, I, not even capitalists are the virus. Like, <laughs> capitalism is a specific thing that makes all these societal ills worse, including pandemics. It is not the, yeah. it is not the inherent thing that is threatening us right now. That doesn't mean it's not bad. It, it doesn't well, mean that it's not leading to uh, worse responses to these pandemics and what is the in, uh, inevitable coming climate catastrophe. But the idea that it can be resolved by mass deaths is objectively horrifying and has historical roots that have led to a large majority of genocides in this world. and if we keep having this idea coming from folks on the left and the right simultaneously that, well, maybe humans are just bad. So, because humans won't improve ourselves, we're going to have to learn to be bad humans. And that may just require yeah. letting a lot of people die. Yeah. That is a dangerous ideology. It's and a dangerous when you, ideology. And when you sure. have folks on the left saying that, and you have folks on the right saying that, you're gonna get ecofascism as a predominant political movement. And once that happens, we're gonna really be beyond the Rubicon. We're gonna be yeah uh, deep in a uh, political issue that we don't have the language to deal with. No. Um, which is one reason why <laughs> why you really have to approach the whole thing from a whole lot of different points of view, historical, philosophical, ideological. Well, and, and so, a thing I want to point out is that there, uh, this is also from uh, uh, Bookchin, uh, it's a 1987 essay that he had, um, where he talks about... Um, kind of this historical concept of uh, nature worship, very specifically, like not this kind of idea of pastoralism or uh, idealism, but actual nature worship. And he, he discusses the Nile Valley and how there was this, um, you know, real worship for the change of seasons. There was a worship for the river. There was a worship for the soil. There was all this deep spiritualism tied into um I mean, not they didn't, of course, you know, think of it as an ecology. It was just the cycle of the world around them. It was just life, and that was tied very heavily into one of the longest existing caste systems and oppressive uh, monarchies that this world has seen. And 
once you have this sort of uh, real worship of the world around you that is tied to oppressive systems, it becomes really hard to get out of those oppressive systems without feeling like you are fighting against the world around you. Yeah. And I think that is, um, I mean, you, you see, I mean, similar stuff with uh, some of the, the Hindu nationalism right now, particularly in the uh, Kashmir region, where there is, um, you know, the, the, the main conflict between like India and Pakistan in the Kashmir region is that it is one of the main water flows for both northern Italy, uh, India and southern Pakistan. And because of that, it's one of the most contested areas on the planet, and which is why right now there is the uh, Indian military has seized control of it, and it's been in basically a media blackout since last summer. Yeah. It's resources are uh, key things people fight over, and making it seem that the only option is to completely eliminate your opponents in a struggle for resources is about as far from that sort of Star Trek utopia we were talking about at the beginning of this. But I fear it's going to be recast as the same thing. That people are going to see that, you know, struggle for resources and say, well, actually, that's how we get to our, you know, spacefaring, uh, gay luxury communism. Well. Gay luxury, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But but I mean, that's Um, I think how a lot of folks are going to see it as like, this is the path forward, especially when we get into an actual climate catastrophe. I mean, we're um, in it now, but. We're waiting as it as it becomes more widespread and affects more people directly yeah yeah so honest what what are your thoughts what yeah. what, what, what are your end thoughts I, on this I barely have any <laughs> i'm I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop I'm waiting to see what happens through this pandemic I think that the response that we're getting from the state and from regular people is going to tell us a lot about what the future holds. Uh, And I think that the coming depression and the responses out of that are also going to tell us a lot about uh, what we can expect um, in the the coming decades for the development of ideology and for the problems uh, that we're going to have to face and the enemies that we may potentially have. Um, So... If you can, if you have the resources, if you're comfortable enough, pay attention. Uh, you know, look out for the warning signs. Figure out, you know, what you're seeing, and figure out what your response is going to be. Uh, you know, talk to your friends, uh, build a network, uh, have your plans for responding to emergencies and for taking care of yourself, your family, and your neighbors. Um, because, you know, we we talk a lot about ideology. We need to. Theory is important. Mm-hmm. So really, my takeaway is that it doesn't matter what kind of fascism it is, we're going to face. I think it's going to be eco-fascism. Same. But, I, think, I think we're already um, starting to face it. Yeah, we're starting to see it. 
Uh, but the real takeaway is start preparing. Get ready because, uh, you know, the rest of our lives, the next 20, 30, 40 years are going to be uh, some of the most turbulent that we have seen in a long, long time. Yeah. So that, that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, we'll still like dance and sing songs of shit. Like, if you're if you're planning stuff and like getting together and making mutual aid networks, and you're not singing and dancing, then what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Honestly, no, I mean, like the, the thing is, preparing for the apocalypse shouldn't be somber. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and I, I mean that that's kind of a, a, a jokey thing to say, but I, it, absolutely seriously, like you know, it, it, it it's. Getting into a doomer mindset with this is so easy. Well, when you are looking at, you know, proto fascist groups and openly fascist groups going around to Capitol buildings, waving rifles, and seeing police kind of just shrug, and then simultaneously seeing folks who are doing a rent strike getting arrested en masse, it's hard to not look at this and see this oncoming climate catastrophe and not just lose hope on it. And there is hope to be had. We have a chance to still, you know, fight against all of this. And we had to have to. You don't really get, you don't get to sit on the sidelines. So. No, I mean, it it comes down to that question, like, whose side are you on? Um, And you got to pick one. So uh, I think that our response to to this uh, coming ideology has to be uh, to be counter to it, to actually care for our environment and for the people uh, who are affected by the disasters to come, uh, to take care of one another, uh, to build stronger relationships uh, with the people we love, and to make it so that even though we're probably at this point not going to have any adequate response to global warming, that for the time that as a species we have left on this planet, uh, we don't have to wallow in misery. Yeah, sing, dance, gone. <laughs> you know, have have your party. You know, spend time with your friends. Do it at a distance for now, but at some point we will be able to, you know, be close to one another again and hug and and be close. Uh, like there is a future, and it may look bleak in a lot of ways but you know we resist that by caring for one another and taking yeah and, and i think in a lot of ways um this current pandemic has been a a, a great eye-opener for everyone as far as uh what the government's response is going to look like to real disasters um what different groups in the population's responses are going to be to real disasters and in some way what real solidarity looks like yeah where there is this and maybe it's just the fact that because people are at home more often when they do go out and you see them you know walking around or biking around people seem friendlier they're waving they're mm-hmm. willing to stop and talk at you know a good 10 foot distance yelling back and forth <laughs> with each other but yeah, there is this sense of hey, we're all in this together, and sometimes, I, I, and yeah. a lot. I mean, yes, disregarding the folks who are waving AR-15s 
outside of the Michigan governor's office, there are a lot of folks who are just treating it as like, well, okay, we have to support each other to help us get through this, not just physically, but mentally. We we have to have the support of each other to to not lose ourselves in some sort of you know massive emotional depression society wise while we slide closer and closer yeah. to a financial depression uh, society wise. Yeah, I mean it. It uh, you know, to use the cliche, um, it is a long road. And we don't know where the fuck we're going. No, we don't. But um, we're gonna get there together. Yeah, and uh, yeah, thank you all for listening. Yeah. And um, thank you. tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you. Uh, bye. Yeah. Bye.